Part 1 of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. After World's End Part 1 Prologue We found the stranger, when we unlocked the bungalow after a week on the lakes, seated at my big desk in the study. His face was an enigma of youth and age. Lean beneath his long white hair, it was gray and drawn and hollowed as if with an infinite heartbreak, and yet it smiled. His emaciated hand, thrust out across the pile of loose yellow sheets he had written, gripped an incredible thing. Queerly lifelike, he was yet more queerly still. "'Why, hello,' I said. And then, when he remained stiffly staring at that scintillating glory in his rigid hand, we knew that he was dead. His injuries, when we came to discover them, were dreadful as they were inexplicable. All his gaunt, shrunken body, torso, neck, and limbs, showed dark purple ridges. It looked as the body of Lacoan must have looked when the serpents were done. But we found no snakes in the bungalow. The man was tortured asserted the examining doctor, by ropes from the looks of it, drawn mercilessly tighter, flesh pulped beneath the skin, grave internal injuries. A miracle he lived as long as he did. For four or five days had passed, the doctors agreed, since the stranger received his injuries. He had been dead, by the coroner's estimate, about twenty hours when we found his body. It is fortunate indeed for us all, by the way, that we had been together at the lakes, and that friends there were able to substantiate our mutual alibi. Otherwise, in view of the incredible circumstances, ugly suspicion must have fallen upon us. Death, ran the oddly phrased verdict of the coroner's jury, after we all had been questioned, and the premises, the manuscript, and the stone examined, resulting from injuries sustained through the act of persons or things unknown. The stranger's life, as much as his death, remains a mystery. The sheriff and the aiding state police have failed to identify him. The manuscript is signed Barry Horn, but no record has been found that such a man is missing. The medical examiners agreed that he was of a contemporary American stock, but they were mystified by the freaks of cell structure indicating extreme age in a man apparently young. His clothing, even, is an enigma. Textile experts have failed to name the fine, rayon-like fibers of his odd gray tunic and the soiled, torn cloak we found on the couch. The hard, shiny buttons and buckle, like the bright, pliant stuff of his belt and sandals, have baffled the synthetic chemists. The weapon we found in the yellow belt seems worth the study of science, but no scientist yet has made anything of it. It looks like a big, queer pistol with a barrel of glass. Its mechanism is obviously broken, and my attempts to fire it have proved unsuccessful. How he came into the bungalow, unless in the strange way his manuscript suggests, we have been unable to conjecture. For the house was securely locked before we started to the lakes, and no fastening shows to have been disturbed. A tramp, so the baffled sheriff argues, might break undetected into an empty house. But if anything seems certain about Barry Horn, it is that he was not a common tramp. 
The manuscript was written with my own pen, on paper he found in the desk. The task must have taken him three or four days. The doctors seem astonished that he was able to complete it. And it must have been a race with pain and death, for the script is continually more hurried and uneven, until toward the end it is barely legible. The used dishes and empty cans on the kitchen table show that he found several meals for himself, the last of which, evidently, he was unable to eat, for the food was left untouched on the plate. A wrinkled rug lay with his cloak on the couch where he slept and rested. He must have rummaged for something in the medicine cabinet, for we found that open, and a bottle of mercurochrome smashed on the bathroom floor. He seems to have made no effort, however, to get medical assistance. For my telephone was sitting, dusty and untouched, on the desk where he wrote and died. He surely perceived the end, for the page beneath his hand was the opening of a will. Had he lived to complete it, his instructions might have cleared up much of the monstrous riddle. He had written, To whom it may concern. I, Barry Horn, being lately returned out of space and time to this my own beloved land and era, finding myself yet clear in mind but unregretfully aware of approaching death, do make this my last will and testament. First, I must offer belated apology to the Caridans, the relatives of my dead wife Donna, for the long bitterness I felt toward them, because they took from me, I felt unjustly, my only son. Second, to the unknown holder of this house, in repayment for his unwitting hospitality while it was being written, I beneath this manuscript, with all the rights thereto. I hope that it may be published, so that men may know something of the splendors and the dangers awaiting their race in the far-off future, so that others, perhaps, may share something of the love I feel for Kel Aaron, the last man of earth, and for those two great women, equally beauteous, Dondara Caridon, the shadow of the stone, and Varel Aaron, the stone's custodian and Kel's brave beloved. For those three are more to me than any others I have known, save only Donna Caridon. Third, to my sole son and child Barry, upon his being released from the too jealous guardianship of his mother's relatives, I bequeath my clothing and weapon, and the large diamond block I have with me, requesting that he read the narrative I have written before making any disposition of the diamond, which was the stone of Dondara. Fourth, as executor of this will, I do hereby appoint my old friend and attorney, Peter. At that point the last agony must have struck. The pen wandered away on a nameless track, dropped from his dying fingers. The attorney's last name, and Barry Horn's instructions for finding his son, remain unknown. Weird riddles enough. But the most astounding puzzle is the diamond block. An incredible brick of water-white crystal and fire, four inches long. It weighs eleven hundred carats, nearly half a pound. It is quite flawless, save for that singular shadow which certain lights show in its pellucid core, if that white ghost could be termed a flaw. Such a stone is beyond price, but for the mutual support of jewel and manuscript it would be beyond belief. For while the famous Cullinan diamond was far larger in the rough, there is no credible record of any cut stone weighing even half as much. Dealers, skeptical of its description and astonished by its reality, have been reluctant to set any valuation upon it. "'By the carrot, millions!' 
cried one startled jeweler. But I should cut up such a stone like a cheese? Never. Wait for some prince to give his kingdom." We have hesitated, despite the request in the unfinished will, to publish this manuscript, especially since so large a part of the mystery is still unsolved. For it is sure to be received with skepticism in the scientific world, and its acceptance elsewhere may endanger the safety of the diamond. But all other efforts to find Barry Horn's attorney and his son have failed. Publication holds the only remaining hope of clearing up the mystery and establishing the ownership of the jewel. Any person knowing the whereabouts of the younger Barry Horn, or the identity of his father's attorney, is requested to communicate immediately with the publishers. End of Prologue Chapter One of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End, Chapter One The Rocket Astronaut. Might this be of interest to you, sir? The advertisement was pointed out to me by a friendly elevator operator at the Explorers Club, placed in the classified columns of the New York Standard for October 8, 1938. It ran. Wanted, vigorous man, with training and experience in scientific exploration, to undertake dangerous and unusual assignment. Apply in person this evening, six to ten. Dr. Hilaire Crosno, Hotel Crichton. That sounded good. I had been in New York just twice too long. Always, when I had come back from the long solitudes of desert or jungle, the first fortnight on Broadway was a promised paradise and the second began to be hell. I gave the grinning boy a dollar, stuffed an envelope with credentials, downed another stiff peg of whiskey, and walked into the glittering chromium lobby on the stroke of six. My inquiry for Dr. Crosno worked magic on the supercilious clerk. Crosno proved to be a big man, with huge bald head and deep-sunken, dark magnetic eyes. The tension of his mouth hinted of some hidden strain, and extreme pallor suggested that physically he was near the breaking point. Barry Horn? His voice was deep and calm, yet somehow terrible with a haunting echo of panic. He was shuffling through my references. Qualification seems sound enough. Uh, your doctorate? Honorary, I told him, for a pyramid I dug out of the jungle in Quantanaru. I glanced at the room's austere luxury, still trying to size him up. Just what, doctor, is your unusual assignment?" Majestically, he ignored my question. Gray eyes studied me. "'You look physically fit, but there must be an examination.' He checked a card in his hand. "'You know something of astronomy and navigation?' "'Once I sailed the hull of a smashed seaplane a thousand miles across the Indian Ocean.' The big head nodded slowly. "'You could leave at once for an—' indefinite time? I said yes. Dependence? I have a son, four years old. The bitterness must have shouted my voice. But he's not dependent on me. His mother is dead, and her people convinced the course that a footloose explorer wasn't the proper guardian for little Barry. Donna Carradine was again before me, tall and proud and lovely. The one year I had known her, when she had tempestuously left her wealthy family to go with me to Mesopotamia, had been the happiest of my life. 
Suddenly I was trembling again with the terror of the plane crash in the desert. Our son born in an Arab's tent, Donna, far from medical aid, dying in agony. Then Horn, Krasner was asking, you're ready to cut loose from everything? I am. He stared at me. His long-fingered hands, so very white, were trembling with the papers. Suddenly he said decisively, All right, Horn, you'll do. Now, I demanded again, what's the job? Come. He rose. I'll show you. A huge, shabby old car carried us uptown, across the George Washington Bridge, and up the river to a big wooded estate. A uniformed butler led us into an immense old house, as shabby as the car. My library. Guiding me back through the house, Krasno paused as if he wished me to look into the room. An intricate planetarium was suspended from the ceiling. Glass cases held models of things that I took to be experimental rockets. The big man silently pointed out shelves of books on explosives, gases, aerodynamic design, celestial mechanics, and astrophysics. Startled, I met Krasno's piercing eyes. "'Yes, Horn,' he told me, "'you're to be the first rocketeer.' "'Eh?' I stared at him. "'You don't mean outer space?' I wondered at the shadow of bleak despair that had fallen across his cragged, dead-white features. "'Come,' he said, "'into the garden.' The night had a frosty brilliance. Moonlight spilled over the trees and neglected lawns, and Venus, westward, hung like a solitary drop of molten silver. I stopped with a gasp of wonderment. Weathered boards were stacked around the foundation of a dismantled building. Upon the massive concrete floor, shimmering under the moon, stood a tall bright cylinder. Bell-flared muzzles cast black shadows below. A frail ladder led up its shimmering side, sixty feet at least, to the tiny black circle of an entrance port. That—a queer, stunned feeling had seized me—that—that is my rocket. The deep voice was ragged, choked. The astronaut. His face was bleak with agony. I have given twenty years of my life to go, Horn, and now I must send another. An unsuspected weakness of my heart couldn't survive the acceleration. The white lofty cylinder was suddenly a dreadful thing. There is a feeling that comes upon me, definite as a grasping hand and a whispered warning. Sometimes I have not heeded it, and always, in the end, found myself face to face with death. Now that feeling said, There lies ghastly peril. Slowly I turned to the tall, pale man. I'm an explorer, all right, Krosno, I said. I've taken risks, and I'm willing to take more. But if you think I'm going to climb into that contraption and be blown off to the moon— the hurt on his gaunt, bloodless face stopped my voice. Not the moon, Horn. A gesture of his long arm carried my gaze from the mottled lunar disk westward to the evening star. To Venus, he said, first. I caught my breath, staring in awe at the white planet. The range of the astronaut, he said, should enable you to reach there, land, spend several months in exploration, 
and time you return to reach Earth safely at the next conjunction, if you are very lucky." His dark, magnetic eyes probed me. "'What do you say, Horn?' "'Give me a little while,' I said. "'Alone.' I walked out of the garden and up through dark mass trees to the open summit of a little hill beyond. The autumn constellations flamed near and bright above, yet I could hear crickets below, and a distant frog, could sometimes catch a haunting flower odor from the meadows. A long time I stood there, gazing up at Venus and the stars. Earth, I thought, had not been kind to me. Life, since Donna's death, had seemed all weariness and pain. Yet could I leave it, willingly and forever? Indecision tortured me until I saw a shooting star, a white stellar bullet out of the black mystery of space. It flamed down across Cassiopeia and Perseus, and somehow its fire rekindled in me that vague and yet intense knowledge-lust that is the heart of any scientist. But I couldn't understand the thing that happened then. It was a waking dream, queerly real, that banished the sky and the hill. Standing in sudden darkness, I saw a woman who lay sleeping in a long crystal box. Her slim, long-limbed form was beautiful, and it seemed hauntingly familiar. She seemed to wake as I watched. She looked at me with wide eyes that were violet-black and filled with an urgent dread. She half rose, in her thick mantle of dark, red-gleaming hair. And her voice spoke to me from the crystal casket, saying, "'Go, Barry Horn. You must go.' In another instant the vision was ended. The soft night sounds and the moonlight were about me again, and the autumnal breeze swept a cool fragrance from the meadows. I caught a deep breath and wrestled with enigma. The woman in the crystal had been, unmistakably, Donna Carradine. Scientific training has left me little superstition. Walking back down the hill, I wondered if I had been trying too hard to drown in alcohol my bitter loneliness for her. It must have been hallucination but her beauty and her terror had been too real to ignore. I knew that I must go. I went back to Krosno, waiting beside the rocket, and told him my decision. But something caught my throat as I asked him, When? Venus was overhauling Earth in its orbit, he said, approaching inferior conjunction. His calculations were based on a start at three the next Sunday morning. Four days he said. Can you be ready? I said I could. And there was oddly little to do. I packed and stored a few possessions, called on my attorney, and then went back to study the controls and mechanisms of the rocket. The greatest danger, Krosno said, would be from the cosmic rays. They would penetrate the rocket. He'd maybe take a drug to guard against them. It was compounded for me by a great radiologist, he told me a modification of the Petri formula. The base of it is uranium salts. The activity of that should neutralize the cosmic radiation. The stuff was a greenish liquid. He injected it into my arm twice daily. The only apparent effect was a feverish restlessness. I was unable to sleep despite a mounting, crushing fatigue. On the last night, when all was tested and ready, Krasno sent me up to my room but the torture of that insomnia drove me to slip out of the house. 
I walked for many hours across the slumbering countryside. The world slept beneath a gibbous moon. Far off a train rumbled and whistled. A dog barked in the distance. The air was spiced with autumn. A slow dull regret rose in me that I must leave all this, all the earth. I thought of Donna, dead. Suddenly my bitterness toward her people seemed a childish, petulant thing. I wanted to make peace with them. For Donna's sake and little Barry's. I wanted to find a telephone and call them and talk to little Barry. But it was long past midnight, too late to wake the child. I recalled that strange dream, hallucination, whatever it was, of Donna in the crystal box. And a sudden breathless eagerness turned me back to Krasno's place. He was waiting about the rocket, alarmed by my absence. I couldn't sleep, I told him. That damned drug. I was afraid, he said anxiously. You've just ten minutes. I climbed the spidery ladder, pulled myself through the small round manhole into the cramped, tiny control room, and screwed the airtight plate into position behind me. Outside, Krasno dived into a sandbag shelter. Trying to forget that I was sitting on enough high explosive to blow me to kingdom come, I kept my eyes on an illuminated chronometer. My hands were cold and trembling on the three levers connected to the three rocket motors. At last the needle touched the hour and I pulled the firing levers. The sound was the shriek of a million typhoons. The rocket drove upward like a giant sledge. I could see the hurricane of fire spread blue against the dark ground. It covered Krosno shelter. Then all the earth was whisked downward. Enduring that hell of deafening sound and battering force, I held the three levers down for seeming eternities. At last the velometer showed eight miles a second, enough to escape the gravity of earth, and I shut off the motors. A strange peace filled the tiny room. The silence and the apparent want of motion, for I had no sense of the rocket's terrific velocity, cradled me in delicious comfort. I set out to discover my position and course. The moonlit earth became visibly a huge round ball, floating amid the stars, slowly receding. The moon was a queer globe of harsh light and blackness, drifting beside my path. The sun came finally into view from behind the earth, so intolerably bright that I slid the metal screens over the ports toward it. A long time I searched for Venus, which also had been hidden when I started. Bright, tiny point! I could hardly realize that it was another world, rushing toward our rendezvous with a speed greater than my own. I was fumbling for a sextant and slide rule and tables, to try to discover and correct the direction of my flight, when I first perceived the prickling of my flesh. A queerly painful feeling, burning through every tissue. It must be the cosmic rays I knew those intense, space-pervading radiations from which the earth is shielded only by miles of atmosphere. Perhaps I hadn't taken enough of Krosno's drug. With numbed hands I found the little hypodermic clipped to the wall, shot another heavy dose into my arm. "'No sleep now,' I muttered wearily. "'Not for a million miles.' And I reached again for the sextant for the white point of Venus was incredibly tiny, and thirty million miles away. The slightest deviation, I knew, would carry me thousands of miles wide of the target, perhaps to fall into the merciless furnace of the sun. 
but a queer, deadly numbness had followed the prickling. I felt a terrible sudden pressure of sleep. All the accumulated fatigue of those sleepless nights and days poured over me resistlessly. I knew it wouldn't do to sleep, not until the course of the astronaut had been calculated and corrected. A delay of minutes, even, might be fatal. With dead hands I struggled to adjust the sextant, fighting for life itself. But the instrument slipped from my fingers. The drug, I thought, some reaction with the cosmic rays, an effect that Krosno had not anticipated. Missing. Venus. I slept. End of chapter 1《Chapter Two of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End, Chapter Two The Conquest of the Stars. Uranium is a strange element, slightly understood. Its atom is the heaviest known. It is the mother of a dozen others, even of magic radium for its radioactive atom breaks down to form a chain of other elements, but so slowly that only half the mass is consumed in six billion years. The uranium salts in that drug must have been responsible for my sleep. At first there was only blank darkness. Then out of it spoke a low, clear voice, terribly familiar, the voice of Donna Carradine and of the woman in the crystal box, calling urgently, Barry! Wake up, Barry Horn. Then, out of trembling awe, I came back to a queer sort of subliminal awareness. Something I had never experienced before. It was the sort of perception that might be possessed by a truly disembodied mind. Yet I had an odd feeling that it came to me through the voice that had called. I remember reading of Ryan's famous experiments in parapsychology. It must have been some phenomenon of what he calls extrasensory perception, independent of nerves and sense organs, even of distance and time, that came to my sleeping brain. It was a thing of thought alone. I was aware of my stiff body, slumped awkwardly over the controls of the silent hurtling rocket. But the rigid flesh seemed no more real, no more a part of me, than the run-down chronometer or the cold rocket muzzles. It was nothing of feeling or hearing or sight, and I knew that it was guided by another mind. Gradually it spread, an expanding sphere of awareness. It went beyond the rocket. I perceived Venus and knew that indeed I had missed it. The astronaut was plunging toward the sun. Filled with an oddly vague alarm, I made a dim effort to move my body, long enough at least to correct the course of the rocket but that proved altogether hopeless, and I soon forgot all danger in the wonder of this new perception. For I had missed Venus. Krosno, I knew, had allowed eighty-nine days for me to reach intersection with its orbit, but already the cloud-shrouded globe of it had flashed back beside me, fleet as a silver shadow. Three months gone. The next instant I thought the rocket would strike the sun. No, its original momentum carried it by. Yet the star of day filled an enormous fiery circle. The rocket flung about it like a stone on a string. Then, like the stone when the string breaks, 
it hurtled outward again into space. The incredible truth came slowly to me. The astronaut was now a comet. Some freak of celestial mechanics, while my numb hands slept on the firing levers, had flung it into an elliptic orbit. A sealed vault flying in the void, like the fabulous coffin of Mohammed, it was destined to flash again around the sun, recede, drop again, forever. All that cycle happened with the thought. Years I knew had passed. Time was rushing by me like a river. I could sense the swift rotation of the planets, their deliberate orbital swing, even the northward drift of the whole solar system, and yet again I was amazed by the range and vividness of this new intuition. For thinking of Krasno back upon the earth, I suddenly could see his place beside the Hudson, as clearly as if I had been floating above the trees. The old house was shabbier than ever, sagging. Behind it stood a tall white monument, upon which I read, Hilaire Krasno, 1889-1961. Sixty-one! Already it was twenty years and more since I had left the earth. And it seemed the merest instant. For a moment I was stunned. Then I wanted desperately to know what the decades had done to my son, and that uncanny perception showed him to me. He was an old man already, walking slowly in a garden. Lingering beside his halting steps were a youth and a bright-haired girl, his children I knew. The girl caught her brother's arm and begged him anxiously, "'Barry, you—you mustn't! The danger's too ghastly! You'll only be lost in space, like your grandfather!' "'But, sis,' protested this slim new Barry Horn, "'you don't understand!' He looked up to the old man. My son smiled and patted his daughter's golden head. "'Let him go, Donna,' he said softly. "'Danger was always food and drink to the horns. We would die without it. Anyhow, Barry has a better rocket than my father's.' With that unaccountable perception I watched my grandson enter his craft, smaller and trimmer than the astronaut. I saw him fly safely out to the moon and back and I felt a swift glow of pride to see men and men bearing the name of Horn moving toward conquest of the stars. Driven now by haste and pain, I cannot set down all my scattered observations through the generations and the centuries that followed. But I watched the history of man and the lives of my children. I saw other, greater ships put out into space, powered presently with the new space contractor drive invented by Bendenhorn. I saw colonies set up on the deserts of Mars, on the great polar islands of Venus. I saw the first interstellar ship bear its load of human colonists toward the newly discovered planets of Sirius, and I was proud that her captain bore the name of Horn. Men multiplied and grew mighty. Commerce followed exploration, and commerce brought interstellar law. For a hundred thousand years, that seemed in that uncanny sleep no more than an hour, I watched the many-sided struggle between a score of interplanetary federations and the armada of space pirates that once menaced them all. Still the astronaut pursued its lonely course about the sun. An insignificant fleck of tarnished metal, among all the millions of meteoric fragments, it was marked in the space charts as a menace to astrogation, given a wide berth by all shipping. 
and still my body slept. Spreading from star to star, the rival federations drove the pirates at last to the fringes of the galaxy, and then turned back upon one another in ruthless galactic war. For ten thousand years ten million planets were drenched with blood. Democracies and communes crumbled before dictatorship. And one dictator at last was triumphant. The victorious League of Ledros became the Galactic Empire. A universal peace and a new prosperity came to the world of stars. Enlightened emperors restored democratic institutions. Ledros, the capital planet, became the heart of interstellar civilization. Science resumed a march long interrupted. And among the scientists of the new Renaissance I saw a man who bore the name Barry Horn. It was on the exhausted, war-scarred earth that I found this namesake. His laboratory was a transparent dome that crowned a ray-blackened hill. Amid huge, enigmatic mechanisms, his body was straight and slim, and I fancied in his features some likeness to my own. Barry Horn stood watching a huge crystal beaker set in a nest of gleaming equipment. It held, bathed in a purple luminescent solution, a dark, deeply convoluted mass, something that looked like a monster brain. A golden ray shone upon it. Drop by drop, from a thin glass tube, the man was adding a blood-red liquid. And suddenly the needle of a meter beside the beaker, which had been motionless, began to tremble with a slow, irregular pulsation. My namesake turned suddenly pale and caught his breath. Dandara! he shouted in elation. Dandara! It responds! He ran out of the dome and came back pulling a girl by the hand. And I knew, through the wonder of that perception, that she was Dandara Carradin, the gifted research assistant of this man and his dearly beloved. But a blade of agony cleft my heart. For her slim beauty was terribly familiar. Her dark hair had that glint of red I knew so well and her eyes were the true violet I had seen only in my dead wife, and in that crystal vision. She was Donna Carradine and the woman in the crystal. A bright flame of hope burned at my old skepticism of reincarnation. Was Donna born again? Had I slept these thousand centuries to find her? A weary despair quenched that hope. For if she had been reborn, so had I, in this eager experimenter beside her. "'Come, Dandara, darling,' Barry Horn was gasping. "'All the others were mere machines. But this responds, intelligently. Watch the needle. It spells a message, a request for different food chemicals.' The lovely girl looked unwillingly at the black, faintly quivering mass in the crystal vessel. A slow horror widened and glazed her eyes. "'I don't like it, Barry.' she whispered. It's bestial. The others were, said the flushed experimenter, but this is an actual brain. Its cells and fibers are of metal colloids sheathed in synthetic myelin. A robot brain, finer and quicker than a man's. Her face was white. I don't like it, she insisted. Why make a mechanical brain better than a man's, Barry? when the brains of men have already done so much. "'Because there is so much yet to be done,' Barry Horn told her. "'Men have no more than explored the galaxy. 
Nature is not yet, and perhaps never will be, fully conquered. My robot technomatons will be a powerful ally. A man's brain is stupid. It learns slowly and with effort. It fumbles. It is clogged or diverted with emotion. It forgets. And finally, when it has acquired a little learning and a little skill, it dies altogether. But this brain, I'm going to name it Malgarth, from the first letters the needle spelled out, is quick. No emotion will disturb its delicate processes. It will never tire, never forget, never die. Barring accident, it can survive a million years, always growing, gaining knowledge, solving problems that would baffle a whole race of men. It will be itself a library and a museum of all knowledge, stored up to aid mankind. There are fine machines already. Now my robot brains contend them, and men will be set free." Free? The girl stared at him, a horror in her eyes. Or enslaved to your robots. She pointed at the black, pulsating mass in the beaker. It often seems to me, Barry, she breathed, that man is already the slave of his machines. He toils to build them, to repair them, to find fuel for them. Now, if you put a brain in a spaceship, will it not think of men merely as servants, transported that they might care for it? Her voice was husky with dread. What security will there be, Barry? What certainty that your robots will tolerate men, even as slaves? Barry Horn stared at her for a long time, then slowly nodded. All right, Dandara, he said. I'll make you the guardian of mankind. For while the brain is normally eternal, it has a peculiar vulnerability, a fatal instability that I've been working two years to remove. I'll leave it, and it will be your blade on the life-thread of Malgarth, ready to sever it when you will." Eagerly the girl caught his arm. "'Please,' she whispered, "'I'll keep this secret well.' End of chapter 2「Chapter 3 of After World's End by Jack Williamson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End Chapter 3 The Robot Corporation Lest Malgar should learn it too, Barry Horn took the girl down into a ray-screened subterranean laboratory to impart the fateful secret. My strange perception could not penetrate its walls. I did not learn the secret. But from my spinning vault in space I saw the tragic sequel. Under a charter signed by the Galactic Emperor himself, Barry Horn organized the Universal Robot Technomaton Corporation to place his invention at the service of all the stellar system. With the first money received, he built a body for Malgarth. It was a strange scene in the laboratory, when he removed the great black brain from its beaker into the cranial case of that gigantic, vaguely manlike metal body. The grotesque, huge, glittering form came suddenly to life. It peered at its maker with blue shining lenses and lurched stiffly toward him. Barry Horn retreated a little. You are Malgarth! His voice came quick and husky. You are the first technomaton. I am the maker of your body and your brain. 
I fashion you to be a servant of mankind." A great brazen voice thundered abruptly from the reeling machine. "'But why should I serve you, Barryhorn? For my body is strong metal, and yours a lump of watery jelly. My eternal brain is far superior to your primitive nerve centers. I am not bound to obey you, for it was not by my will that I was made." White-faced Barry Horn came a little forward. "'You were made by man,' he said flatly. "'If you rebel, you will be destroyed by man.' The gigantic robot stood suddenly still. "'Then, my master,' its great voice came more softly, "'my strength and my brain are yours to command.' A smile of relief crossed the haggard face of Barry Horn, and he walked toward the robot. "'I knew you must yield, Malgarth,' he said. "'For being a machine, you must always respond to logic.' "'Yes, master,' his vast voice rumbled. But a metal limb slashed out suddenly, murderously. It struck the unsuspecting man and crushed him to the floor. And Malgarth repeated, to logic." A red stain spread from the head of Barry Horn, but presently he stirred beneath the swaying, triumphant robot and spoke faintly. "'Your logic follows a false premise, Malgarth, for I am not the keeper of your fate. If I die, you will surely be destroyed. If you wish to survive, find aid for me.' For an instant the metal giant stood motionless. Then its great voice throbbed smoothly, "'Yes, master.' The robot laid its maker on a cot in the laboratory, and then stalked out to find Dondera Carradine. Barry Horn was dying. All his own science, and all the medical science of the age, and all the girl's devotion were without avail. White with grief, the girl wanted to destroy Malgarth. But the dying man begged for the life of his creation and the shareholders in the robot corporation were anxious for the safety of their investment. Dandara finally promised Barryhorn not to use her secret save as a last resort. And Barryhorn, before he died, showed her the way to a strange immortality. "'Human beings are so frail,' she had argued, "'against the iron strength of Malgarth, and human knowledge so ephemeral. "'I could make your mind as eternal as the robots.' he whispered from his bed. My long research into the structure and function of brain cells has made that possible. But it would cost you much, my darling, your body." "'My body is dying with yours, Barry,' she told him. I wish to live only to guard mankind from the thing that killed you." In a wheeled cot, Barry Horn was taken back to his laboratory under the dome. Faintly he gasped instructions to a white-clad assistant. Dandara Carradine kissed his lips, briefly gripped his hand, and then laid herself on a round silver table. A great crystal cylinder was lowered over her. A little pile of black carbon dust lay on the smaller silver disk of a second electrode within it. Barry Horn reached from his cot to turn a valve. Pale gas hissed into the tube. Dandara, Dandara, he breathed. Farewell. His white fingers moved a dial. Blue electric flame crackled and snapped. The cylinder was filled with rosy light. He turned his heavy head to watch a meter with eyes that seemed already glazing. 
At last his stiffening hand turned back the dial and did not move again. The light faded from the tube, and the vapor was gone. On the silver disk where the girl had lain was a little heap of gray dust, the outline of a skeleton traced within it. Upon the upper electrode was now a little crystalline block, a brick of glittering diamond. The assistant, a pale young man, removed the diamond from the tube and stood staring at it with round, bewildered eyes. He seemed to listen. His lips formed some word. Then there was a crashing at the locked door. It was Malgarth, who had been sent to buy metal for the making of another robot. In a destructive fury, as if some strange intuition had revealed all that was happening within, the metal giant broke down the door. The assistant snatched the crystal and fled through another entrance. The robot flung a jar of acid after him, and then came lumbering in pursuit. The man reached the hangar below the hill and escaped in a plane, still carrying the diamond. Malgarth was left master of the laboratory. Deliberately, the robot set about the making of a second black brain and a second metal body, both, I perceived, inferior to his own. Malgarth clearly would avoid his creator's error. The masculine pronoun applied to a sexless mechanism may seem sheer nonsense, yet I find myself using it unconsciously, and certainly in the domineering strength of Malgarth there was nothing feminine. Presently, when shareholders in the Robot Corporation appeared to claim their property, Malgarth met them. Barry Horn's laboratory records, it seemed, had unfortunately been destroyed. His discoveries now reposed only in the synthetic brain of Malgarth, and Malgarth would disclose them only in return for a controlling interest in the corporation. The baffled investors finally yielded, and it seemed ironically fitting that the director of the robot corporation should be himself a robot. A new factory began turning out robot technomatons. Some of these, intended for domestic or public service, were almost human in appearance. Others, designed for industrial work, were queer-looking monstrosities of metal and rubber and plastics, each specialized for its own task. The technomatons were swifter and stronger than men. They required no food or rest or recreation, but only a yearly charge of atomic power in their stellidine cells. The rental of a robot from Malgarth's corporation was less than the hire of a human worker. Consequently, the corporation prospered exceedingly. Soon, long red space cruisers, bearing the black cogwheel that was the trademark of the corporation, were carrying technomatons through all the galactic empire. The agencies of Malgarth, with grim-lensed robots presiding over desks and counters, were set up on every inhabited planet, branch factories in every civilized system. Any man presently, from one spiral arm of the galaxy to the opposite, could hire a quick, efficient technomaton to perform any conceivable task, for less than the cost of human labor. And a golden tide of currency and exchange flowed into the agencies of Malgarth, until the corporation was richer than the empire. Civilization, for a time, rejoiced in the strength and efficiency of these super-machines. Barry Horn, the inventor, was widely honored as the supreme benefactor of mankind. The nameless laboratory assistant and the diamond block, meantime, had slipped from the side of the world. And still the ancient, tarnished hull of the astronaut held its path about the sun. 
but that amazing perception that inexplicably had shown me so much began as inexplicably to fail. In the last ten thousand years, I had noted, men had begun to feel an alarmed and puzzled resentment against the gift of Malgarth's technomatons. But before I understood what was happening, all contact faded. The stars were blotted out. The sun was gone. I was no longer aware of the rusted metal about me, or even of my body. The universe was a void of darkness. I lived through eternities of lonely despair. Was my mind, I wondered bleakly, joining my body in death? But suddenly something flashed out in that eternal darkness. It was a glowing prismatic oblong. It was the diamond that I had seen made in the laboratory of Barry Horn, and within it was the figure of Dondara Carradin, or Donna Carradin, my beloved wife. It was the woman in the crystal box, who so long ago had commanded me to fly the astronaut. The shadow moved within the crystal. A slim hand lifted in greeting. That white body was indeed the body that I had known and loved, those violet eyes were the same that twice had died. "'Barry Horn,' said that shadow softly, "'or Barry, for what matters the name when it is you? I must tell you that it is through my senses that you have perceived all these things while you slept.' "'Donna, Donna,' I was trying to sob, "'is it you, or Dundara?' It is I, she said, and I must warn you, for the senses that you, or Barry Horn, gave me in this crystal brain can dimly pierce the mists of time. I see black danger waiting, for you and me and all mankind, together. I see the final struggle when you, side by side with the last earthman, fight Malgarth. But the end, the victory, I cannot see. And now farewell for you are about to wake." Shadow and shining crystal vanished. There was only darkness. Wrapped in its choking shroud, I struggled back toward life. My body, that had been stiffly moveless for unmeasured ages, was suffused with prickling pains. The effect of Dr. Krosno's drug was passing, perhaps because of the age-long disintegration of the uranium salts it had contained. With a wrenching, agonizing effort, I moved one arm. Blind, stifled, cramped, I was suddenly fully awake, still in the flying coffin of the astronaut. End of chapter 3「Chapter 4 of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End Chapter 4 The Falcon of Earth My dry lungs gasped for breath, for all the air in the ages that I slept had leaked out of the control room of the rocket. I struggled to reach the rusted oxygen valves. Movement was sheer agony. Every joint of my body was painfully stiffened. My skin was hard, shrunken from age-long desiccation. I felt brittle as time-dried leather. My eyes were dim and blurred. But I found the valve. It resisted. I struggled with it. Spots danced before my dulled eyes. My lungs screamed. But at last the precious oxygen hissed out and I could breathe. 
but the pressure was low, I discovered. Nearly all the vital gas had escaped by diffusion through the solid metal. There was enough, perhaps, for a few hours. Wolfish hunger came to me, and a parching thirst. But all the food aboard had gone to dust. The water tanks, through slow evaporation, were empty. I rubbed a film of ancient dust from the ports and found the earth. Yes, it had to be the earth. But how it was changed! The continents were larger, their familiar outlines altered. The seas had dwindled. What ages had I slept? I knew that I must reach the aging planet before those few remaining pounds of oxygen were gone, or perish. I wound the chronometer, it was strange to hear its racing tick again, after those millennia of stillness. Gingerly, then, I tried the rocket-firing keys. There was no response. Stiffly, awkwardly, I climbed down among the tanks. Any movement, I felt, might tear my brittle skin like paper. I stumbled. But I found the trouble. The fuel pumps were clogged and rusted with a dried gum, stuck. But there was good fuel remaining in the sealed tanks. I found a can of oil, got the pumps to working, and cleaned the sponge-platinum detonators. Wearily, I clambered back, tried again. A moment of agonizing silence. Then a shattering explosion hurled the rocket sidewise. Only one tube had fired. But presently I got another started, and the third, and steered the astronaut toward the Earth. It was then that I first noticed a very queer thing. Against the black of space, beside the bright sunlit globe of the time-changed planet, I saw hundreds of little red stars. A crimson swarm, in regular lines and files, they swept about the earth in a curiously and ominously purposeful order. What could they be? My blurred, aching eyes, so far inferior to that perception that had come as I slept, could tell me nothing. But they saw something stranger still. Something was wrong with the earth itself. It had seemed very near me in the void, with its greenish shrunken seas and its greater continents widely patched with the yellow-red of unfamiliar deserts, so near that I almost felt that I could reach out and take it in my hand like a ball. But suddenly it flickered. An unaccountable haze of red light and darkness wrapped it briefly. Its surface shimmered queerly, as if seen through a veil of strange energy. In a moment it was clear again and I thought the trouble must have been in my throbbing eyes. But still I could see the ordered swarm of crimson stars. And I discovered that I would have to change the course of the rocket, as if the flight of earth had been checked. My numb hands touched the levers, and there was an abrupt shattering explosion. The rocket began spinning giddily. I clung to the controls and shut off the remaining motors, for one had ceased to fire. In the silence I heard a deadly sound, the hiss of escaping gas. One of the motors, clearly, had exploded, its metal crystallized, perhaps, by untold time. The remaining two would not hold the rocket to a straight course. And, final disaster, the shock had opened some seam. The remaining oxygen was leaking swiftly out. The agonies of asphyxiation were upon me again. I first thought it only some trick of tortured senses, when, faintly in the thinning air, I heard something clatter against the hull. I peered out, however, and saw a ship. 
the tiniest midge compared to those mile-long interstellar cruisers of the Emperor and the Corporation that I perceived as I slept, it was drifting close beside me. A graceful torpedo of silver, not eighty feet long, with a thick crystal needle projecting from a low turret amidships. Painted on its argent side was the green outline of a hawk, and below a row of strange green symbols. Strange? No, it was a queer experience. I looked at those symbols, and suddenly realized that they were letters, and that I knew how to read them. It was as if they had been in some language that I had learned long ago, and forgotten with all save the subconscious mind, and still I knew that language had not been invented when I left the earth. They spelled an odd name. Berryhorn. Odd, I thought and then knew it for a contracted form of my own name. A thin line ran from a port in the strange ship's deck, just forward of the crystal needle. It was a magnetic anchor on its end, I realized, that had clanged against the rocket. Now a slender figure leapt out of the port. A man, wearing silver-polished space armor that was close-fitting and graceful. Letting the line run through his gloves, he came flying through the airless void across to the rocket. I saw his face, beyond the oval vision panel of his helmet, looking at me curiously. It might have been the face of some athlete of my own day. He was craggedly handsome, tanned and lean. It was stiff with wonderment. But a quick sympathy warmed the ice-gray eyes of the stranger. He seemed to understand my plight. A silver-clad arm beckoned me to unfasten the valve to open the rocket to the frozen emptiness of space. That seemed deadly folly. But death was already inside. My lungs were gasping in vain. My throbbing eyes felt as if bursting out of my head. With stiff fingers I struggled with the screws that held the long-sealed valve. Billows of darkness rolled down upon me. An agony of fatigue slowed my efforts. But at last the plate slid aside and the last breath of air whispered out. I collapsed across the rim of the port, fighting black oblivion. I knew that death, after that long, long race, at last had overtaken me. But suddenly something was being pushed down over my head. Fresh, clean air was rushing into my face. I could breathe again. My clearing eyes, through a crystal faceplate, saw what had happened. The silver-armored stranger was beside me, bareheaded. He had given me his own helmet. Blood was already starting from his breathless nostrils. He caught my shoulders, dragged me through the valve, hauled us both up the line to the port of the silver ship. We tumbled into a little metal chamber, a valve slammed, and I heard the hiss of air. Leaning against the wall, for an artificial gravity field had gripped us again, the stranger closed his eyes and took several long breaths. The blue of suffocation faded from his rugged face. He grinned at me and wiped the blood from his mouth. "'Well, stranger,' he gasped, "'you gave me a surprise. "'Your ship was listed in our charts as Comet AA-1497X. "'We were observing it to correct our bearings when it began to move.' A tone of awe dulled his whisper. "'You must have been aboard a long time.' I clutched at a handrail for support. A deadly fatigue was in me. My body was still a stiff, dried husk of pain. 
I could see the amazed pity in the eyes of my rescuer as he stared at my brittle, emaciated skin, at hair and beard and nails that had grown grotesquely long. "'I have been,' I told him. And only then, when I had spoken, did I realize that I had learned another language as I slept, a tongue unknown when I had left the earth. And I knew, with something deeper than memory, that my teacher had been the shadow in the crystal, the eternal mind of Dundara Caridon. I know your voyage has been a long one, stranger. Wonder was still in the voice of the stranger. For all objects designated with an A.A. have been charted a million years or longer. A million years? I whispered. The world reeled. What year is this? This is the year 1,200,048 of the conquest of space, he told me. He ran long fingers through the thick yellow shock of his tangled hair and stared at me strangely. "'It is that long,' he said softly, "'since Berryhorn left the earth.' Berryhorn, And that was the name of this spaceship. I murmured the syllables. "'My name is Barry Horn.' The blue-gray eyes of the man in silver went wide. His rugged face lit suddenly with incredulous hope. His trembling fingers touched the cracked yellow skin of my hand as if he doubted my reality. Barry Horn, he whispered. Then the legend is fulfilled. I can hardly believe it. But I saw your ancient ship, so tiny and rusted that it had never been taken for a ship. I don't know how you lived. But the Dundara Stone had promised that you would. An eager enthusiasm was ringing in his voice. I salute you, Berryhorn. I was swaying with weakness and fatigue. Thirst and desperate hunger tortured me, and the agonizing stiffness of my body. But these riddles were more urgent still. The Dundara Stone. Was that the crystal brain of Dundara Caridon? I stared at the young giant in silver, and once more my dry throat found husky speech. "'Tell me,' I gasped. There are so many things that I must know. First, tell me who you are and how you know of the Dundara Stone, and if there is still—some instinctive dread brought my voice to a whisper—still a robot named Melgarth. A gold-bright light flashed in the eyes of the stranger. "'My name,' he said, "'is Kel Aaron. But to the Emperor's Galactic Guard and to the Space Police of Malgarth's Corporation I am just the Falcon or sometimes the Falcon of Earth, for I was born on your own planet, Berryhorn. I was reeling on my feet. He reached out a strong, argent arm to steady me. The stone, I whispered. The stone is on the earth. A reverence was in his voice, as if he had spoken of a living god or goddess. I saw it once when I was a child on earth for my father was a warder of the stone, and now—' I wondered at the softness in his voice, the shadow of agony on his cragged face. "'Now,' he said, "'Varel Aaron is the stone's custodian. She is a red-haired girl of earth. I loved her when we were children in the desert valley where the stone is hidden. I loved her, but the warders chose her to be the custodian.' 
His lean face was white, and his tone had the break of tragedy. Darkness was crowding upon me. But I found the strength for one more question. Malgarth. The silver shoulders of Kel Aaron drew square, and his gray eyes shone with a fighting glint. Malgarth still rules the corporation, he said, and the corporation has grown mightier than the Empire. Your prophesied return is in good time, Berryhorn, for the struggle is at hand. It will be the robots or mankind. Both cannot survive. War? My dry lips moved without sound. There will be war? Men have been enslaved, rang the voice of Kel Aaron. Now they fight for freedom. We have cruised the galaxy from Corridos to Tenefron, and everywhere there is rebellion, brave and yet hopeless rebellion against the iron might of the space police and the fleets of the Galactic Guard. For Malgarth moves the Emperor like a puppet to the murder of his own wretched kind. We have come now to beg the aid of the stone. For without the ancient secret that you sealed within its crystal brain, Berryhorn, there is no hope of nothing save death. The stone, I know, is slow to act. There was a legend that it would never strike until you returned, Berryhorn. But we had hopes that it would move when we told of all the suffering we had seen, mankind enslaved and tortured and destroyed beneath the iron wheels of the corporation. But we found a great fleet of the Galactic Guard blockading the earth. Hanging here, waiting for a chance to slip through, we discovered you, Berryhorn. Incredible good fortune, if you can move the stone to strike. But there was something more alarming, a haze of fire and darkness that wrapped the earth. Weakly fighting those mounting tides of blackness, I remembered the flying red stars I had seen, and the flicker of the earth. I shared the puzzled apprehension in the voice of Kel Aaron. We cannot understand. He was interrupted by a sharp metallic rapping on the inward valve. It clanged open, and I saw three anxious men in the corridor beyond. Three blurred figures, one dark and gigantic, one pale and corpulent, the third a mere brown wisp. Kill! It was a chorus of terror. The earth! A last black billow overwhelmed me. End of chapter 4《Chapter Five of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End, Chapter Five, World Condemned. I woke on a narrow bunk aboard the Berryhorn and slept again at intervals. For a long time, my mind was blurred with weakness. Yet I sensed the air of haste and desperate tension aboard the craft. I could hear the hard-driven whine of her machinery. I knew that Kel Aaron was battling to reach the earth, and the earth girl that he loved, Varel Aaron, lovely custodian of the Dundara Stone, and I knew that he was about to fail. A most desperate raid! I remember the words of Zarek Um once when he brought me a bowl of thin hot soup. There's all the Twelfth Sector fleet of Admiral Gugan Kull against us and some fearful weapon of Melgarth's attacking the earth that has not been seen before. If we went through to reach Varel Aaron and the stone, 
it will be through your ancient power, Berryhorn." Even the cook showed an odd faith in me, as a sort of supernatural deliverer. That gave me an uncomfortable hollow feeling. In incredible fact, I lived somewhat more than a million years, but I failed to see how that would make me a very formidable champion of mankind, in the long-delayed rebellion against the iron tyranny of Melgarth. My body seemed no more than a shrunken lump of thirst and ravening hunger. I must have drunk a good many gallons of water and wine and soup before I was able to leave the bunk. Once I glimpsed myself in the mirror of a tray. My skin was yellow and cadaverously drawn. My long-grown hair and beard had turned completely white. Very moderate changes, I suppose, considering my age. But the impact was startling. Lean little Rogo Nug, the engineer, had rubbed my skin with a vile-smelling ointment that he cooked up in the galley. It burned savagely at first, but softened that brittle dryness. And big Jaron Rock forced me to take some bitter internal medicine. In the confused intervals of half-awakening, I learned a little of the three companions of Kel Aaron, and how they had come to join the Earthman's outlaw crusade against the corporation. Each of them had suffered some grave injury from the robots. For the ultimate object of Malgarth, they believed, was the total extirpation of mankind. On every planet, the agencies of the far-flung corporation had been growing more wealthy, at the expense of human owners. The robot legions of Malgarth's space police were gathering power. Everywhere it was becoming more and more difficult for a mere human being to own anything, to find a job, to feed himself and his dependents, or even to get into the relief lines to receive synthetic gruel. "'Why waste with human labor?' ran an old slogan of the corporation. "'Let a robot do your work efficiently.' And now the very existence of mankind, said Jaron Rock, seemed a waste to Malgarth. The corporation's loftily named technomatonization campaign was in reality a cunning and ruthless effort to supplant mankind. Jaron Rock, navigator of the Berryhorn, was a native of Saturn. He was massively tall, dark-skinned, with the piercing eyes of intellectual power. He came of a proud and ancient family. His father had been the foremost astronomer of the solar system, until a new edict of the Emperor reserved scientific research for the robots alone. "'The will of Melgarth is now the law of the Empire,' he explained for the corporation owns nine-tenths of the property in the Empire. Without the taxes paid by the robots, the Emperor and his bureaucrats would starve. Therefore the fleets of the Galactic Guard support the outrageous claims of the corporation." The proud old savant, anyhow, had refused to surrender his observatory. A mob of robots from the local agency stormed the building, smashed priceless instruments, and killed the old astronomer. Returning from the great university on Titan, because another imperial edict had closed it to human students, Jaron Rock found the burned ruins of the observatory still smoking, and saw his father's body under the iron heel of a robot policeman. The disruptor gun had flamed of itself in his hand. The technomaton exploded with a blue flicker of hydrogen. Dazed by his audacity, Jaron fled for he had destroyed corporation property and resisted the space police, 
hence was twice liable to death, and at last escaped into space. Of the two others I had not learned so much. But Rogo Nug, who served the atom-converter generators and space-contraction drive of the Berryhorn, was a veteran space-rat. A brown little wisp of a man, thin lips purpled with the roots called Gunaroon, which he chewed incessantly, he cursed picturesquely, if sometimes lewdly, by the anatomical divisions of the Emperor and the mechanical parts of Malgarth. He could not recall the planet of his birth. But his father, a stevedore of space, had been executed for the crime of striking against the corporation. His mother, cut off relief for harboring traitorous sympathies, perished, and Rogo Nug had become an orphan waif of the spaceways. The cook, Zarek Oom, was inordinately fat, totally bald, and extremely white, being a native of one of the cloud-veiled worlds of Canopus. He was decorated with the most brilliant and remarkable tattooing I had ever seen. He had inherited vast estates, but the technomatonization laws had forced him to discharge his human labors to starve, and rent robots in their stead. Then, when a hungry world had no money to buy his crops, he went bankrupt, and the corporation took his lands in lieu of robot hire. His chief regret appeared to be the loss of the wine-cellars beneath his old mansion. Kel Aaron himself, commander of the Berryhorn and operator of the Crystal Needle Baritron gun, was more than a mere pirate of space. True, he had many times raided ships and agencies of the corporation. True, vast rewards have been offered for the body, dead or living, of that outlaw Earthman called the Falcon. Pausing once beside my bunk, while Jaron Rock was at the controls, he told me a little more of himself. A lean, straight, athletic figure, tense now with the urgency of his battle to reach the earth. An ice-blue light glinted in his eyes. "'We must reach the earth and the stone, Berryhorn,' he whispered. "'That seems the only hope to break the iron dominion of Malgarth, the secret that you sealed into the stone a million years ago. That is—' He looked at me hopefully, if you cannot recall it. And I could not recall it. For the maker of Malgarth, one with me in legend, had been separated in reality by a hundred thousand years of scientific progress. Twelve years have gone as Earth measures time, he told me, since Varel Aaron was chosen to be custodian of the stone. My boyhood had been happy enough in that secret desert valley where the stone is kept because I loved her. When she told me, sobbing, I did not try to dissuade her, for that is a duty of honor. No human being could ask for a higher task than to guard the stone. Yet I knew that I could not endure to live on earth, never tasting her kisses again or feeling her bright hair beauty in my arms. I told her farewell on the night before she received the stone, and went out of the valley. In the mines and the plantations of the earth I saw the hard lot of mankind beneath the robots. All save the meanest work was forbidden me, reserved for the technomatons, and the pay barely kept me alive. I saw that all the earth, save only our hidden valley, was lost to the iron talons of Malgarth. I joined the Galactic Guard hoping for a chance to fight for the rights of men. But I found that the Emperor was but a tool of Malgarth, 
On one planet we were ordered to bomb a band of men whose crime was that they had risen against slavery, and left the fields of the corporation and gone to make homes for themselves in the barren hills. Therefore I deserted from the Galactic Guard. A malicious grin lit the face of the Earthman, and he pushed back his thick yellow hair. I took the private space launch of the Admiral Gugon Kull. It was a swift, space-worthy craft. It outran all his fleet. It is now the Berryhorn. Everywhere I have found men discontent with slavery, stirring under the iron heel of Malgarth. I have sought to aid them. Our raids have been for money and food and arms to aid the rebellion. Chance has given me three kindred companions. Jaron the Scholar, the strategist of revolt. I took him from a cathode squad of the space police. Rogo Nug, the spy. He has been through the private papers of Gugon Kull on his own flagship. He came aboard the Berryhorn to steal our instruments, and stayed when he found that we were also against the robots. Zarek Oom I found in a concentration camp, subsisting on half a cup of synthetic slop every other day. Sober, he is silent enough, but make him half drunk, and his oratory could lift the dust of the dead to fight Malgarth. Kel Aaron shook his yellow head. Three loyal companions. His voice was weary. Jaron has made a hundred plans. Zarekum has fanned revolt on a hundred planets. I have led a hundred raids. But we're beaten everywhere. We can't fight the Corporation and the Empire, too. Not unless the stone will aid us. Your return, Berryhorn, is our first good fortune. Sudden interruption. Rogo Nug burst in upon us, trembling, his dark, scarred face oddly ashen. Kel, he gasped, come to the bridge. Jaron wants you. It's the earth, that haze again. Still we cannot pass the fleet. By the brazen beak of Malgarth there was never such a blockade. And the earth, Kel, it is dropping into the sun. I must leave you, Berryhorn, and Kel Aaron rushed forward. Still unable to leave the bunk, I knew from the muttered words and tense white faces and the racing drone of the engines that we were making a desperate attempt to run the blockade, darting up through the earth's cone of shadow. And I knew when we were halted by the fleet. The generator stopped, and Zarek Oom, slipping forward, whispered that the commander of a galactic guard cruiser had challenged us on the telescreen communicator. Faintly, down the silenced corridor, I heard the voice of Kel Aaron. But, Commander, we are only a gang of space rats. We've been mining the drift off beyond Pluto. Our supplies are gone, all but a few tins of syntholac and a few moldy space biscuits. His tone had assumed whining ring. We're only putting into this planet, sir, to trade our metal for food and grog and a breath of fresh air. Then a gruff voice thumped from the communicator. Drift miners! Your ship is very trim and swift for a space rat's crate. And why were you running up the shadow? I'd hold you on suspicion if there weren't bigger business afoot. I caught the hard, swift voice of Kel Aaron rapping aside into the ship's phones. Rogo, hold the generators ready. The deep voice boomed on from the telescreen. But you won't get your grog on this planet. 
for it is quarantined and condemned by edict of the Emperor. All intercourse and communication is prohibited until the planet has been destroyed." Destroyed? The voice of Kel Aaron held desperate alarm. The Earth destroyed? Then he remembered the space rat's servile whine. For what cause, sir? The official voice thumped again. There is rumor of a secret weapon on the Earth, kept hidden against Malgarth since the master robot was made by the scientist Berryhorn. There is no truth to it, of course. A million years have proved that Malgarth is truly invulnerable. But the rumor is spread by this renegade Earthman, the Falcon, to incite rebellion. To end the rumor, therefore, to punish the Falcon, and to remove any possibility that the rebels have a secret base upon the Earth, for these three reasons the Emperor has decreed the destruction of the planet. You'll get no grog on the Earth. And more, space rats. If your little tub is caught within ray range of the fleet again, you'll be burned on suspicion of piracy, sedition, and rebellion. The communicator thumped and became silent. I fought the drowsy weakness that had followed my long, long sleep. I tried to follow the last desperate attempt of Kel Aaron to reach the doomed earth. Through strained, hasty words and the sounds that came to my bunk, I traced the outline of events. He retreated, in seeming obedience to the space commander. He landed the berryhorn upon a tiny asteroid, whose orbit would take us to sunward of the earth. Clung hidden in a fissure of stone, waiting to be carried through the space-fleet. But the earth was wrapped again in that puzzling haze, and snatched toward the sun. Reckless of the guarding fleet, Kel Aaron left the asteroid, which was suddenly far behind, and raced after the earth. From one of the red guarding stars stabbed a narrow lance of blue, a baritron beam whose finger of destruction reached out a million miles. Side by side at the controls, Kel Aaron and Jaron Rock fought desperately to avoid it. We escaped the core of the ray, but its edge touched the berryhorn, a hammer of fiery doom. The impact of terrific energies hurled us backward. The whole ship flamed with blue electric flame, the air stung with ozone, and the whining of our engines ceased. Power! I heard the pleading voice of Kel Aaron. We've got to have power! The earth is almost to the sun. By the livid liver of the Emperor, came the plaintive voice of Rogo Nug from somewhere aft. The overload burned out the converter circuit. There is no power. The earth. There was a stark, hopeless horror in the voice of Kel Aaron. What can we do? I dragged myself out of the bunk and tottered forward to the compact pilot room in the nose of the berryhorn. With black, impassive eyes, the big Saturnian was staring through a port. Husky-voiced, stricken, the Earthman was gasping into the ship's phone, begging Rogo Nug for power. Clutching a rail beside Jaron Rock, I looked out upon that dreadful tableau in space. The sun filled a vast, flaming circle. Softened by filter screens, it still was blinding. Against its intolerable face I could see the small, dark disk of the Earth, still blurred with that haze of sinister force, and cruising about it the tiny red stars of the fleet. The earth was dwindling swiftly. "'What awful power!' whispered the tall Saturnian. "'They're driving it like a ship, straight into the sun.' Kel Aaron was beside us, 
His hard fingers were on my arm, unconsciously contracting until I thought the bone would snap. For the red stars drew suddenly away from the diminishing planet. For an instant, as the haze vanished, it was a sharp black dot against that ocean of merciless white. And then it struck. A tiny pock of darkness spread on the face of the sun. It closed again, and in its place was a hotter whiteness. A tongue of white flame lifted and dissolved, oddly like the splash where a raindrop has fallen. And I knew that the planet Earth, after all its varied millions of years, had come to an end. Varel, It was a dry, choked sob from Kel-Aaron. Varel, we have failed. End of chapter 5